Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. Can you imagine Americans being like, God, our our dialect sucks. I wish we sounded like British people. Leave your kid in the car, give it a cardboard box to play with, and it'll be fine. Most people just know America from the movies. America is just Texas, or it's just New York, or some place in California. Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. He's Tim. And he's Evan. And Marie-Louise Deutschmann is here. She's from the city of Linz in Austria and spent one year as an au pair in my hometown of Newburyport, Massachusetts. She's here to talk to us all about what it's like to leave behind your familiar home for a whole year and travel to America for the very first time to a small New England town. And whether U.S. stereotypes actually met her expectations, basically, you're going to hear a European's take on American life which can always be a little bit contentious, right, Tim? Yeah, and she's actually able to bring a really good dose of humor to coming to America, especially considering that she was here for an entire year. And I know, Evan, you've spent a year in the UK. Was there anything you debunked about American life while you were over there? Yeah, so I mean, I lived in Scotland for a year, and I certainly had preconceptions going into that year of of what the UK was like. And I had spent some time in the UK before, but I mean, number one, bad weather, 100% true. Weather sucks. Anyone from the UK will tell you that. Uh, for food, I hate to say it, but when your signature dishes are fish and chips and imported chicken tikka masala, you've got a little soul searching to do. Um, oh, and for the other stereotype, big one, is um, bad teeth. So here's a story. And I'll preface this by saying, in general, I do not think that British people have bad teeth. But the first night that I went out in Scotland, this I mean, this is going to sound like a massive generalization, but I went out with my um, my roommate who was Canadian, and this old Scottish guy comes up to us, and he says, "You guys are Americans," and we look at each other and say, uh, "Well, yeah, American and Canadian. I mean, how how did you know?" And he says, "With the most confidence I've ever seen in a human being." You guys have straight teeth. People here do not invest in dental work. <laughs> and it was just the craziest, the just a hundred percent referring to that stereotype that people in, in the UK have bad teeth, which again, I don't think after being there for a year, I, I don't think it's true at all really, but it's just funny how with all stereotypes, of course they're dangerous to, to let them kind of get too deeply rooted in your mind. But a lot of them do have these seeds of truth to them that are that even the people that live there buy into. Yeah, definitely. And it's always interesting to hear the stereotypes that aren't true from somebody that spends a decent amount of time in the US, which we learn a lot about in this episode, actually. Well, yeah, speaking of stereotypes, Tim, you're a Colorado guy and it is winter. So I'm sure you've been hitting the slopes since at least mid-November, right? How's that been going? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is going to be a year unlike any other. Obviously, there's COVID to deal with. The resort experience is definitely different. You're not riding the chair with strangers. You know, you're only you're either by yourself or with the people that you came to the mountain with. So there's no commingling there. 
There's no inside opera ski. So what is the, I, I know how much you like co-mingling. So how much, how is the opera ski different? Well, at, at this point, it's pretty much non-existent, though. I think that's going to change as we move into the holiday season, because unless the status changed, when I worked at Purgatory many, many years ago, we did a third of our business for the entire year over a three-week period in Christmas, uh, as far as total sales. So it's really busy, and they certainly cannot afford to not be selling food and drinks to these people, because that's a, a huge chunk of the income. Yeah. Tim just brandished a fork. I don't know what he's getting into right now. I'm I'm kind of finishing a Caesar salad over here. I'm just kind of picking at the Parmesan that's on the plate. I just saw you like raise your hand in the air and you're just like waving a fork. Around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the it's a nervous twitch. I just kind of raise a fork in the air every once in a while. Uh, I always carry a fork with me just in case of an emergency. You never know when you're gonna need one. Yeah, but yeah, I'm gonna I, I've I've snowboarded once before in my life last year, and I'm gonna I might try and dabble in skiing this year. Maybe Tim will take me skiing. Yes, I mean, you should sign up for a lesson. Signing up for a lesson sounds corny, especially when you're an adult, but it absolutely is the best thing you can do. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I can have a bunch of six-year-olds lap me about four times before I can make it down the bunny slope once. This probably isn't acceptable, but we'll get a, we'll get a nice buzz on, and then I'll go to my, my ski lesson for ages five and up, and that'll... That'll help me deal with the shame and embarrassment. All right, we'll have some white claws in the car for you. That actually makes you fall better, right? Because you don't you, you don't stiffen up when you fall. So if you're loose, the looser you are when you fall, it, it's the easier it is in your body, right? If you're blacked out, drunk, you might not do like the natural reaction to falling very well, and like kind of protect your head or your limbs, you know. But a decent buzz, it's kind of like speaking a foreign language that you like can speak a little bit, but you're certainly not anywhere near fluent at. You know, a little buzz goes a long way are you saying that when you're buzzed you can speak a foreign language i speak spanish much better when i'm sauced for sure yeah you don't overthink it yeah and you don't you're not self-conscious you just say what comes to your mind even if it doesn't come out correctly yeah all right well yeah hey stay tuned if we uh stop putting out episodes sometime mid-january it's because i met, met my end on the ski slope somewhere in western colorado but until then yeah we're gonna Get into it with Marie Louise. We'll see you guys on the other side. Okay, Marie Louise, welcome to No Blackout Dates, all the way from Austria. What a virtual commute. Thanks for being here. Great. Hi. So you are from the Austrian city of Linz, and you spent a year in the U.S. as an au pair. Describe a little bit what kind of motivated you to make that move, to kind of be like, all right, I want to do this. I want to leave Austria for a year, go to the US. Was it a desire to travel? Was it you really want to do the au pair thing combination? Well, I think the au pair thing just kind of happened. So when I decided to go to the US, I was like, okay, I just don't want to finish high school and go into university right away. That's, that's not what I wanted to do. It would be such a sad thought to just go from one educational point to another one, even though it's super important. I thought, it's even better to travel and to experience a lot of things that people tell you about, like make, make the memories and don't just spend the time at uni. So I was like, okay, I need to leave Austria for a little bit. It might be a work and travel or it should be an au pair. And after a while, I just thought it's easier to be an au pair because you go to the family, you take care of the kids. The only thing you actually have to do is to make sure they survive the day with you. And then you're off, which is really nice. So. And that's more of a European thing than a U.S. thing, the gap year. 
right? Like taking a year off in between high school and college because we we don't really do that. You would, I think, I think that's a problem. Americans should do more. Well, it's funny. I, I looking back on it now, I wish I would have taken a gap year either before college or maybe a, a couple of years into college, you know, and split it up. But uh, yeah, it wasn't even something that I thought about. Like when I was going into college. There was the thought of, okay, maybe you'll do a semester abroad, but I didn't even take that very seriously. But the, the, the gap year thing, I didn't even hear about until I was probably like 25. Well, I think in the US, there's this expectation. It's like, okay, like you're on this path. Like you start in high school, you go to college. If you take time off, it's almost like considered suspicious by college. It's like, oh, so what were you doing? Were you volunteering? Were you like feeding kids in Kenya? No, oh, you're just traveling in Austria? Like what a bum. So I think it's like a, Different people view a gap year in the U.S. a lot differently than they do in in Europe. It's not as beneficial. You're kind of like wasting your time almost. Yeah, and I think Americans have like this really structured path. Like you finish high school, you finish college, and you have to have a high school sweetheart. You're gonna get married at 25, and then it's over. You buy a house, and you're done. And a year abroad, it's just not part of the plan. Based in your experience, both uh, working as an au pair and traveling are what is there some attitude differences between kids in the, in America? Are they brattier and more, you know, less willing to think outside their box? American parents really center everything around their kids, like their their crushes, which of course all all the kids are. But American parents they really want to know what the kid is doing, where it's going every single time, and the kid is like. It, it, it could break. It's like this little fragile thing that if you just look, don't look at it for a minute, it's going to disappear. So when I was a kid, my mom left me in the car for like half an hour, an hour to go to the store. And she was like, okay, well, you could come with me. But honestly, you don't really enjoy doing that. I don't, you know, it's just harder for me if you're around when I have to do groceries. So just stay in, stay in the car. There's a box, play with that. <laughs> Here's a cardboard box. Play with that. No offense to your mom, but in the U.S., you'd have at least five concerned citizens calling child support services on you. <laughs> I think American parents and Americans in general just kind of have an underlying paranoia about these about responsibilities, about the fact that anything might go wrong and that might be the end for their way forward. You know. Well, yeah, that's true. That's really true. But also, I like. American kids are so spoiled. Not not all of them, again, but some kids have playrooms. An entire room, not with their bed in it. It was just an entire room for the sole purpose of playing. Yeah, I have one now and I'm 30. Tim had Tim's in his playroom right now. Look at it. It's like, I know, I know. This is my playroom. It's uh, it, it even has a little futon so I can take a nap. <laughs> yeah. You're so cliche, both of you. Absolutely wild that Austrians don't have playrooms. It's crazy. Okay, so official advice from a professional au pair is leave your kid in the car, give it a cardboard box to play with, and he'll be fine. <laughs> They'll grow up just fine. It encourages creativity. It does. That's true, yeah. And you'll do fine out of global pandemic when you're stuck alone at home because you're used to that. You know the environment. Yeah, we're sitting here being like, all right, when's the restaurants opening? When's the bars opening? When can we go to concerts? And you're just sitting there. I can see you right now. You have your cardboard box and you're fine. I am in the cardboard box. Wow, I need to get a box. So uh, I'm I'm curious because Marie Louise, you and Eben met in Eben's hometown, and this was where you 
were working as an au pair. And I would love to hear some of your impressions on Newburyport versus Evan's, you know, longstanding beliefs about his hometown. So what, when you first got into town, what were some of your initial impressions, both of, of uh, New England as a whole and of the town? Well, so at first, when I decided to go to Massachusetts, I was like, do I really want to go there? It sounds boring. Like, the Yeah, why, why Massachusetts? That's the first question. Well, so when you choose a family, everyone tells you like, oh, don't choose the location. Choose with your heart. You're going to make the right decision. I was like, of course. Yeah, sure. I'm going to do that. Um, but it seemed close to Boston. I was like, okay, people like Boston. The initial way they wanted to catch me to come to Newburyport, they were like, oh, so if you enjoy bird watching, where do you place to go? <laughs> and I was like, oh. So for anyone who doesn't know, and let's face it, why would you? Uh, just to set the scene a little bit, Newburyport is a classic, historic, small New England town on the North Shore of Massachusetts. It's got a beach, nice little state park, uh, like two bars that anyone actually goes to. Great bird watching, apparently. So anyway, go on. <laughs> Evan's a big bird watching guy. There's there's one main street. There's one main street. There. 50,000 pizza places. Yeah, it's awesome. But after a while, you just know all of them. It's Okay, so because of the pizza and the bird watching, you decide to go to Newburyport. The birding, the birding. There's a lot, I, I feel like if you have bird watching, cardboard boxes, you're just set, you know? I had my, my main coffee shop, my main pizza place. When I got in there, the people knew me. They were like, oh, it's so nice to be back. I was like, yeah, I pay half of your rent with all my consuming, but that's okay. Thanks for acknowledging me here. So that was really nice because you weren't just a customer. You were a person that entered their store. And I don't think you would have an experience like that in New York or in Los Angeles or somewhere else. Yeah. So did would you say that I guess the small town United States experience kind of met your expectations. Also, I think Newburyport actually is like the stereotypical American town on shore. So that really met my expectations. But besides that, I was always like, okay, Americans have, or America itself has like huge mansions. Everyone is wearing PJs for Christmas and they're matching and everyone has loud laughter and heated political debates. But it wasn't exactly like that. They are loud. They really, you Americans really like to use your voice. Everyone says Americans are so ignorant, as I mentioned earlier. But I think most of them are rather superficial. And it's like, oh, so nice to meet you. The dress, I love your dress. You look beautiful. Oh, we're going to be best friends. What's your Instagram handle? So that's the conversation I have with so many people. And then when you see the person at the bar the next time, it's like, oh, hi, so nice to meet you. I'm Jennifer. And you're like, no, Jennifer, we met two times already. You told me we're friends. And suddenly you don't know me anymore. When you first enter, especially like a small town, you're a little attraction. People are like, oh, she's from Europe. She's so international and she's here with us. Because Newburyport isn't that huge center of America. So people don't usually go there. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We've got all the pizza places. We've got uh, the Coast Guard was founded there in 1780-something. So it's pretty much the culinary and cultural epicenter of New England, if you ask me. (laughs) 
So the fact that Newburyport even had au pairs was mind-blowing to me because, I mean, this is a place where you kind of know everyone, you see the same people every time you go out to the bar, and then one night I see this table of girls with accents from like all over the world. How, like, how many of you guys were out that night? Seven, eight? Yeah, it was like eight to nine people. Yeah, like a small army of international au pairs. No, well, you only liked me because you remembered that Austrians have Mozart Kugeln, and you... Knew that I was your connection to the candy. Yeah, so Marie Louise became my my official connect for this incredible Austrian candy that you just can't get anywhere else. You're welcome. It was the sketchiest thing ever. You went back to Austria, I think, for like a visit, and you brought back some chocolates with you, and it was like a drug deal. Like I met you at this coffee shop, and I show up, and I'm like, all right, like you got you got the goods <laughs> and you slide the candy across the table to me and I kind of slip you the money, put the candy like under my coat and then just sketchily slip out of the coffee shop, probably without saying two words. Anyone who's watching probably thought you were selling me a bunch of like weirdly wrapped edibles. You didn't even sit down. You came to the shop. You stood in front of me. I looked at you, gave you the candy. You slid over the money and I was like, okay, Bye. bye. For anyone listening, Mozart Google, unbelievable. Or place your order today. If you want a hookup for it, Marie Louise will get you a good price. And these little, they're, they're like Lindt chocolates, but like a thousand times better. What kind of a candy is it? They have marzipan and then they're covered with chocolate. And they're just super sweet. You could eat half of it, but if you eat the entire thing, you just get instant diabetes. It's terrible. I'm more of a fruit fruity candy kind of guy like like mike and ike's i'm just gonna i'm just gonna get fired up if i keep talking about this so we gotta move on <laughs> so i'm i'm curious about you know the au pair experience and what happens afterwards does this was it something that led to uh a change in your college major or another job or or kind of was it more of just a gap year type of thing i think it impacted me more than i wanted to accept in the first place. So when I got back, I was like, okay, so I need to start college. I need to move out. I need to be independent because that's what I at least tried to do while I was in a pair. Do you find it hard to relate to having done that? It's very independent experience, like going to the US for a year, kind of leaving your your home and leaving your friends behind and then coming back. Is it hard to relate to people who haven't had a similar experience, who've just stayed in Linz kind of their whole life and haven't branched out the way you have? I think it's the other way around. I think it's really hard for people that stayed here to understand what I've been through or what other, uh, what other au pairs have experienced. Because if you just never leave your bubble, you don't know what's outside, outside of it. So people here like really try to understand, but after... Like, let's say 20 minutes of having a conversation, they were like, oh, okay. And my year was fine too. It's like, we, we've actually talked about this on a previous podcast. You have to check yourself before you start rambling about how much traveling you've done and all the cool things you did in the US. Because honestly, people want to be polite by asking, but deep down, no one gives a shit, do they? Well, so at first, I was like, okay, so how was your pay year? And I'm like, well, I don't know. How would you summarize an entire year of your life with one word without losing your interest in a conversation? So <laughs> I, it always really depended on who I was talking to and how high the alcohol level was. But most of the time people were like, okay, so tell me about your year. I really want to know. Then you're in like, say, three, four sentences. 
and then they just lose interest because of course no one really wants to hear just the fun things you did within a year while the other part of the conversation was like oh so yeah I went I went to work I got like 20% off my groceries last week yeah even though they're the ones who asked in the first place you kind of have to draw the line somewhere yeah because it seems like you're just like trying to impress the other person or want to make them feel bad and then also like it's really hard to come back and you want to continue to talk about it because you want to keep the memories alive but the people around you they don't want to hear that anymore because they don't have the connection to the people to the places to the memories and you're then you're here like i really want to talk about just pretend to listen to me it's difficult when you someplace is your home for a year like you know new report like the us and you kind of live in that reality and then you have to suddenly switch your reality back to austria and it's this almost like reverse culture shock so i mean beyond just sort of talking about it with people and describing your experience what was the experience like of having to kind of adjust your concept of reality from living in the us to being back in familiar Austria. I need to kind of find my place once again. So you, you're at your home country, you leave and you need to find your place. But then when you come back, things change just because you're not there anymore. It doesn't mean the people around you don't involve. Some friends start a relationship or they move cities and everything is just so different. You're like, okay, I changed in a certain way. You guys changed in a certain way. Everything around here is a bit different. And how are we going to make that work? While, while you're in the US, you, your old life is still moving forward without you in Austria. And then when you come back to Austria, you, you come back to a, a world that's changed. And the reality that you knew in the US that you had been living in for a year is also now moving on without you. Yeah, it's like, you know the movie Interstellar, or, or Interstellar, I don't know how you call it, and you're just in this in this long space, and you're just flying there, and like, okay, where am I going to land? What's happening to me? And that's that happened to me for like, say, six months. I was just in this middle where like, okay, I could be here, but I'm also like, I know I'm in Austria right now, but I kind of want to be in America, because also it was just an easier life. So when you were... Here in Newburyport, how much Austrian influence were you able to bring to the kids' lives? Were they receptive at all to maybe Austrian food, or did you show them music, or what? Did, did they have any interest in your background? Well, I don't know if they actually had interest in the culture, but I just forced it onto them. I was like, "So today we're eating an Austrian specialty." And you're gonna love it. And they were like, yeah, now we don't wanna eat that. It's like, we're gonna love it. It's amazing. So I forced, like, I did it in a very kind way. I was like, okay, so today we're gonna bake something. And they're like, oh, what are we baking? I was like, so it's a really fun thing. It has to do with apples. And then they were like super excited about it and they ate it. And they were like, oh, it's delicious. Like, yeah, it's Austrian. They're like, no, it's not. It's American. All the food is American. I was like, oh, it's not. And we're gonna eat it every week now. So after a while, I think they just didn't like the fact that it wasn't American. But when I told them it's just something without a country behind it, they're like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, Americans don't like things that aren't American. That's rule number one. <laughs> they actually got to learn to spell, uh, to count up until 10. 
in German. Yeah, and that's that's ideally that's like what the fa- au pair's family should be getting out of it. It's like a cultural. It's not just you like watching their kids for a year. It's a cultural exchange. But there are fr- families that don't just they don't really care about where you're from or what you could bring to the family. You just just the nanny. They give you an American name when you show up. They say, "Okay, your name is now Brittany. You will have an American accent." And you will recite the Pledge of Allegiance every morning when you wake up. But no one really actually called me Marie Louise. Everyone was just like, oh, Mary Lou. So I kind of got an American name. Mary Lou is like maybe the most American name I've ever heard. <laughs> so speaking, so you, you did travel a lot when you were in the U.S. Your goal was to see all the states. How many did you get to? I think I went to 31 that's honestly more states than I've been to, I think. <laughs> I, I, I've probably only been to like 31 states. The thing is, when you when you are American, you know you have these amazing states all around you and you could go there anytime you actually want to. But we, we don't know. We don't. We think we can go anytime we want, but we know, no one does. But that's true. And when, you, when you're in a pair, you're like, okay, I have one year. How am I going to put all these states into 12 months? That's really, really hard. So you just try to figure it out somehow. So where is your favorite place? I love Maine. <laughs> it's my favorite state. And it's just so beautiful. The people are super nice. Acadia is stunning. You want to have like a, a real American experience, live in like a log cabin in Maine and just like harvest maple syrup all day. Well, that sounds like that's the actual American dream. So what was the biggest letdown? L.A.? But I kind of expected that because my, my cousin's boyfriend, he's from America. And he was like, yeah, don't go to LA. You're going to hate it. And I was like, no, don't tell me what I'm going to hate. Then I went there. I was like, it's terrible. I mean, I agree. I, it's funny. When I was when I was a kid, I used to think I would want to move to LA or to Southern California. And now that's one of the last places in the country I would want to live. Um, go, going back for a sec to the the whole kind of American stereotype small town thing comparing comparing it sort of directly to growing up in austria living in austria food wise how did you find it how did that kind of meet your expectations or not meet your expectations just uh, kind of going out like fun stuff like culture drinking the the food portions are huge they're huge yeah isn't that awesome no 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 at first that, that that's the problem you get used to them. At first, I've had this huge plate in front of myself. I was like, I can't eat that. No one's going to eat that and feel great afterwards. So a month passed, another one passed. And I was like, oh, well, they're not that big anymore, these portions. I can eat that. And then after a while, you were just like able to eat the entire thing. And then a couple more months passed. You ate it and you were like, oh, so, and what's, what's for dessert? And are we going to get ice cream afterwards and that's terrible but the thing is i don't really enjoyed most of the american foods like the burgers were great but some things were just a bit tasteless and i was just like okay we're great at fast food we're great at frying food i feel like you can fry everything here's an idea that i've had for a while i ran this past nino on a previous episode starting a american food takeout place in Europe, like a fast food chain all across Europe that has American food that you can't get in Europe, like like buffalo chicken calzones, chicken parm, breakfast sandwiches with like, you know, egg on bagels, stuff like that. 
call it fat Americans. I don't. I feel like Europeans kind of care about what they eat. They won't once we once fat Americans starts taking hold. I'll tell you that. <laughs> the thing is, is like Nino says these things, but Nino has lived in New York City his whole life. I I would be inclined to believe a European over that. I just feel like so. I mean, the number one pizza topping in Naples is French fries and cut up hot dogs on pizza. That's number one in Italy. That shows there is an appetite for like shitty American food. But can you actually trust Italian opinions? Have you ever thought of creating your own version of Lint chocolates called Linz chocolates and setting up a shop in downtown Linz? Actually think, or they confuse Linz with Lind. You just get Linz is just filled with like confused chocolate fanatics, like wondering where the Lint chocolate store is. Well, we already have the problem with Austria and Australia. I don't want to have it with Lim and Lin. They're just going to be even more disappointed when they, when they end up in Austria, which is not Australia, and in Linz, which is not Lind. So you get all these like confused American tourists like wandering around Vienna being like, where's the outback? Yes. They get really angry and aggressive. We actually sell shirts with a kangaroo on it and that says no, can no kangaroos in Austria. That's pretty funny. I had no idea this was such a pervasive problem. <laughs> Okay, so as far as like having something to promote or to plug on the podcast, I think your cause is going to be Austria is not Australia. It's a matter very close to my heart because no one really cares about Austria anyway. We'll start a GoFundMe for raise Austria awareness. Here's a question. Mountain vacation, Austria or Switzerland? Austria. Yeah, what do you think she's going to say? One of my colleagues lives in uh, Zurich and she's like, When I was told her I was coming there on the ski trip last winter, she was like, oh, you'll have a great time in Austria because the Austrians actually party. Swiss people don't do anything. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Like, what, what, what I wanted to add, because we do opera ski, which is way better than the actually like hiking or skiing part. You, you go for like, let's say four hours, but then the fun part begins. That's a good segue into the sort of my other question about nightlife and how what you've experienced in the U.S. differs from Austria. Well, going out in America when you're not 21 yet is not really a thing. Like you can't actually do that in Austria. You're allowed to start drinking when you're 16. Because I was so desperate to go into bars, I had the strategy that I'm just going to be there super early, stay in there, And I'm going to be the last one that leaves the bar. I always brought back my friend's beer bottles and I made eye contact with the barkeeper. I was like, okay, so make the connection, the blonde girl and the beer bottles. We work together. Or you just had a fake ID that said you were 36 years old and named Mary Lou. Well, but before turning 21, I actually thought about getting a fake ID. And I took to one of my friends from Germany and she was like, oh, well, there's this amazing website. And it's just 20 euros. Was that like a super sketchy Chinese website? No. That was the second attempt to get a fake ID. Oh, there was multiple attempts. Yes. See, again, I was very desperate. But the first one, when I, when I ordered it, I actually thought about using it. It was in German. And it looked like a, a library card. And I, I opened the package and was like, that can't, that can't be a fake ID. Like, everyone's going to know. Was it like a fake ID for Germany? Like for, so if, okay, so it's for like 12 year olds that wanted to go out in Germany and drink when they were like, because who's getting a fake ID in Europe? It's like, you can drink when you're 16. So why would you even bother? Yeah, but that's, that's always the case when you're not allowed to do something, you want to do it even more. 
Yeah, so your fake ID attempts did not pay off. Um, oh, how about this? When things open up again, has your desire? I know you want to come back to the U.S. to visit. Has your desire to do that been affected in any way by the way the U.S. has handled COVID? Is that has that kind of dampened your enthusiasm to come to the U.S.? Oh yeah, then I'm the first one back in the U.S. for sure. When things open up, you'll be the first one back. All right, okay, undeterred. Very impressive undeterred by our abysmal handling of COVID. Kind of is, but not only the fault of the people, because you actually did have a bit of a shitty government lately, so. I take personal responsibility. I think Tim does too. It's both. I know I haven't, I've, I, it's my fault. I haven't been on a plane since February, but I'm still spreading it around in my house. <laughs> the guy just can't stop spreading COVID. He's addicted to spreading COVID. Look at him, he's shedding virus right now as we speak. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll move on to our next segment, which is listener questions. So yeah, we uh, ask our listeners to submit travel-related questions, and then we ask them of our guests and get their opinions. So this question is from Sophia from Denmark. She asks, I've never been to the US, but it's probably number one on my list once the pandemic is over. My friends think all American people live in Texas have guns and drive pickup trucks with horns on them. I don't think this is true, but I've obviously never seen the country for myself. Is there any truth to this stereotype? And if not, why does everybody think it's true? Well, I think most people just know America from the movies. And so either you think America is just Texas or it's just New York or someplace in California. So it's really hard to judge about America if you've never been there. What did you think it was before you came? So what was your, you obviously didn't think that extreme, but before you, like you're on your flight to come here, be an au pair. In your mind, what is your, what is like the American experience, the American dream? What does that look like? Well, I, first I thought it's going to be a mixture of Sex in the City and Gilmore Girls. Um, so I was like, okay, it's going to be either one of them. And of course I knew about taxes, but didn't really care about taxes. With the stereotypes, it's, I really tried to not get them, like let them get into my head because I'm like, okay, there's stereotypes. They're most of the time they're really bad. So what's the reason to believe in them? But of course I had them. I was like, okay, so they're going to be like ignorant and stupid and fat and all horrible things that I want things about America, which aren't true. But how would you know if you don't actually go there and travel and experience the people and everything around it? So to what extent was America like a mix of Gilmore Girls and Sex in the City? Newbury Report is a lot like Gilmore Girls. I'd have a hard time seeing Newbury Report being like Sex in the City, though. <laughs> You're just not looking in the right places, Tim. I've never been there, so I really have no leg to stand on here. Well, here's a question. So they always do these things on like Jimmy Kimmel, where they like ask Americans to identify countries in Europe. Can, like, can you find Austria on a map? And like, no one can ever find it. If you were to show a European or say if you show an Austrian a map that includes Eastern Europe, could I, could your, could the average Austrian identify most countries in Europe just, just based on a blank ge geographical map? I think so. I mean, with those shows though, I always wonder like how many people do they filter out to get three people that got the question embarrassingly wrong, especially in a worldly, you know, uppity place like New York. There are a lot of people in New York that travel a lot and know where the other states are. 
But I guess they're not asking those people. They're like looking at people on the street like, that guy's an idiot. Let's get that guy. The real test is to ask people where Austria is and see how many of them point at Australia. Yeah, that would be, let's not do that. It would just make me really sad. <laughs> uh, an alarming number, I'm sure. Um, all right. Well, I think that's it for us. Unless, Tim, you got anything else to add? No, I'm good. Thanks for coming on. Sure. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. We'll talk to you later. Okay, it's time for hot takes. You ready for my hot takes first, Tim, or do you want to hit me with your hot takes? Let's hit me with yours. I'm ready to talk. All right. Would you ever be an au pair? <laughs> I don't know if I am good enough at A, taking care of kids, and B, like keeping somebody else's home in the order that they want it to be in, that I would be very good at that job. I am not very good at even taking care of my own home. So Tim, I think we're going to start a GoFundMe for your second career as an au pair. Do you think someone would hire a 36-year-old male au pair anywhere in the world? No, I don't know. I think I would immediately be labeled a pedophile. I I love this. I think this would be a hilarious like web series where we chronicle your journey as the oldest au pair ever <laughs> to, to, to be exported from America. <laughs> That's the blog name right there. The oldest au pair.com. The oldest au pair ever to be exported from the U S to, I don't know who would, who would import you, Tim, but to follow like the reactions of people in that country when they're like, so what are you doing here? You're like, I'm an au pair. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> I don't know why I just made you sound like a 90 year old grandmother who's smoked all her life and has lung disease i'm an au pair where's my pack of parliament menthols yeah well you know if that happens then uh yeah i guess i'll have to i'll have to put everything else in my life on hold okay um what job would you do in another country that you can't do here oh man i would love to run I would love to run like a co-living house or like a co-working space, um, which I can do here, I suppose. But I just, I would love to do that and just have it be like the hub of travelers and remote workers in wherever that place is. There's this guy, I wrote an article about this recently. There's this guy that his job is to hang out at the Tower of London all day and take care of the birds that just hang out there. And his name is the Raven Master. What? There are these like ravens that always hang out at the Tower of London that have like lived there for decades. And he like tends to them and just like makes sure they're healthy and like, okay. I don't, I'm not a bird guy. Don't know anything about birds. Don't really care about birds. But to have the position of Raven Master, to people like, what do you do for a living? Like, ah, Raven Master, no big deal. That's what I would be. It's the only place you can do it in the world, Tower of London. <laughs> And think of who you would meet. You would meet, yeah, you would meet everybody in London that's like a somebody because they would come there, you know, they would know who you are. And you'd probably get invited to all these epic dinners and parties. You're the Raven Master. Who who doesn't want to know the Raven yeah. It's like it's kind of like ceremonial. It's like being the town crier, but yeah, Raven Master. And, and yeah, and at those dinners and parties, you would be the point of conversation, your job. Talk about a resume builder. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Last question, is the royal family bullshit? You know, that's an interesting question. I don't, to me, absolutely. I could not care less. I would say that from the angle of should it be abolished because it's no longer relevant and it's costing the taxpayers a bunch of money, 
initially I would probably be inclined to agree with that because I consider myself to be a progressive, not so much in the political sense, but in the sense of moving humanity forward and away from things that are no longer necessary or valuable to society. I would say that the royal family probably falls into that category. I took you as like a hardline conservative, like family values guy. That's interesting. Yeah, huh. that, yeah, that's me. I so I I see where you're coming from from like a practical standpoint, but I think that there is something to be said for it's there. The royal family is part of the UK's cultural fabric, and I think when people conceptualize of the UK who aren't from there, the first thing that comes to mind is. Buckingham Palace, the royal family and the princes and everything. And it's it's almost one of their biggest draws tourism-wise. So I think you have to make the argument that from a strictly financial standpoint, if you were to take away the royal family, I think you're also taking away one of their biggest tourism draws, which could also cause economic impact. And I think there's something to be said for retaining a sense of historic a piece of your history like a lot of like france uh, other countries like that have monarchies as their as like a huge part of their history but they've since fallen by the wayside in england hasn't happened so i think there's something to be said for that and maintaining that history and that tradition and it's almost sad in a way that a lot of countries have lost that i think well, I think that there's a way to preserve the history without necessarily carrying on the charade. Uh, I, I think that people will always continue to think of, of England and London in particular for Buckingham Palace and for uh, a lot of the historical sites that have to do with the royal family. And and But on the other side of that, what then happens to the family lineage, like the actual living people? Like you can't just unroyalty people all of a sudden. Like there always will be of that family, right? So yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it would be a realistic action point to be like we are going to abolish the royal family because it's no longer relevant. Because it these it 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 is there. You can't just take it away. All right. Well, Tim is a. Uh anti-monarchist so we figured that out and uh i think in addition to the au pair thing i think we might get him a little stint as a royal palace guard buckingham palace guard for a little bit imagine tim just standing there with the the stoic expression in front of the the gates just people trying to take pictures with him that'd be hilarious yeah no i want to be i'll be one of those people that you're not allowed to make any facial expression i could never do that i have the worst poker face okay Evan on the hot seat now. So, so first one, what are your stereotypes of Austrians? Okay, so not to speak for all of Austria, obviously, but I tend to think of Austria as Austria is to Germany as Canada is to the U.S. I think there might be a little bit of an inferiority complex there. When I the first time I went to Austria, I met this group of people in Innsbruck that were shitting on their own dialect and they kept saying like oh i'm sorry you can't understand us our austrian dialect is so hard to understand if we were german you'd be able to understand us a lot better and i was like i can understand you guys fine like relax and so i feel like there's almost this this sense of inferiority to germany because germany gets more international attention but austria's got the best chocolate that's all i care about yeah, can you can you imagine americans being like god our our dialect sucks i wish we sounded like british people well, hey, I mean, this is the theme of this podcast. This is what we're plugging. Austria awareness. Austria, not Australia. Lynn's 
not lint. It's it's great chocolate, beautiful country, great people. Let's give Austria some confidence. Let's build them up a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree. I was going to say something that like I have always kind of thought of Austria having never been there as just kind of like the overlooked country uh, between Switzerland and Germany, you know, because you think of places that American tourists go, you know, if you want mountains and stuff and and outdoorsy stuff, Switzerland, if you want, you know, culture, history, um, you know, beer, you go to Germany. Uh, and yet Austria has all of these things in excess, but they just don't get the recognition they deserve for it. Don't sleep on Austria, guys. There's no outback, but they have chocolate that'll give you instant diabetes. And speaking of stereotypes, for American travelers, that's a little more enticing. So what are your thoughts on a midlife gap year? And I'm not saying like, I'm not saying like being a digital nomad and going and working remotely around the world. I'm saying like pulling the plug and like going to do something like be an au pair in the middle of nowhere for a year when you're in your midlife. I fully support that a hundred percent. I think, I just think it's, um, it's less feasible when you're an adult for a lot of reasons. Usually we'll have a career already making it harder to just take a year. I mean, jobs aren't going to just let you take a year off and go travel the world. I think gap years in general are really important. I think Americans should do that more. And I think, but I think that doing it in the middle of your life is actually more beneficial. It gives you time to kind of take a break, decompress, really sort out your thoughts, where you're going with your life, if you're actually happy doing what you're doing. Because I think like we were talking about, a lot of Americans particularly are on this life track. There's this sense that any time you take to get off of that track, it's going to totally derail your life. And you don't really have time to stop and think, am I actually enjoying what I'm doing? Am I actually it, like living the life I want to live? So I think taking that gap year is huge for people to kind of reevaluate and make necessary changes to the second half of their life. Because it, it's also tough if you have a family, you know, if you're 40 years old and you have, you know, if a spouse and kids, like, you know, what are you supposed to do? Straight up leaving your wife and kids to do it probably isn't the best idea. But Well, maybe it's like a thing you do after your kids go to college. Like they go to college and you take the gap year. Keep that in mind, Tim, before you have kids. That's a good idea. Maybe I'll bring that up with Alicia today. Be like, hey, this is what we're doing if we have a kid. After that kid moves out, we're gone for a year. No, I'm saying do it now before you have the kid. Oh, I mean, we could. I don't know. I mean, we've traveled pretty extensively uh together we just haven't done a year at a time we've done a month or more at a time multiple times okay i mean you're also not midlife yet i know well i sometimes feel like i am but no compared to like somebody that has a 12 year old child and like a yeah i'm gonna hedge my bets and do my midlife midlife gap year when i'm like 60 yeah no i think that's the best time to do it all right well that's about it uh thanks for tuning in and thanks to marie louise Marie Lou, for short, her Americanized name, for coming on the show all the way from Austria. We want to hear what you think about whether or not you would quit your life to go be an au pair in Europe. Let us know at uh, NBD. What is it? No blackout dates pod at gmail.com. There you go. Uh, and yes, leave us a review on Apple. Let us know what you think. Five star review if you think that we uh, are killing it, which is debatable, but even if you don't think so, leave the review anyway we would prefer it if you left us a five-star review and then just talk your shit in the comments 
We'll see you guys next week.